My name's Ryan, if we haven't had a chance to meet, and this morning we are in week five of a series that we kind of kicked off the new year with out of Matthew's Gospel account that we are calling, you guessed it, The One We've Waited For. Uh, I'm going to get right into it. i got a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to end our time together this morning with communion. So let's get right to the text. I'm in Matthew chapter 9. We'll be in verses 9 through 17. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well don't need a doctor. But the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. This is God's word. Um, this, This particular, watch out. This particular passage uh, really catches my attention because obviously the Gospel of Matthew is written by, all right, we're making progress. And so in this passage, Matthew is writing autobiographically about the moment in his life when he officially started following Jesus. And full disclosure, there's too much going on in this passage to cover in one week, so we're actually going to be in this passage for the next two. So what you have on the front end of this passage is Jesus is calling Matthew to follow him. And then on the back end of this passage, Jesus is explaining exactly what kind of life he's calling Matthew to follow him into. So that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. First off, this week, what it means to be called by Jesus. And then secondly, what exactly Jesus calls us to follow him into. But as I said, this week, we're going to focus on the concept of the calling of Jesus. So I just want to begin kind of putting this question out to you. Maybe you've thought about this before. Maybe this is something that's pertinent to your life right now. The question is, what does it actually mean to be called by Jesus, and how can you know if you've experienced that, or maybe if you're experiencing it right now? So what I want to do is look at this this, uh, interaction on the front end of this passage where Jesus calls Matthew and kind of come at it from three angles. We're going to talk about, first off, where the calling comes from. Secondly, we're going to talk about who that calling is about. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the kind of response that the call of Jesus demands. So first and foremost, uh, let's talk about uh, where this call comes from. Where does the call of Jesus come from? The answer according to this passage is pretty simple. It's from outside of us. So what you have here is Matthew minding his own business in his tax office, uh, which was a hated job in that day. And Jesus just walks up and says, come follow me, calls Matthew completely out of that life and into a brand new way of life, which to modern people, nothing particularly exceptional about that story. To Matthew's readers would have sounded very strange because maybe you've heard this before, but in Matthew's day, um, it was exactly the opposite is what we're seeing here. In Matthew's day, students would seek out a rabbi 
They would try to present um, a resume to the rabbi. They would try to give the rabbi a reason that they themselves were worth investing in because it was a great honor to be discipled by a rabbi. And so they would do the seeking. They would do the calling. What you're seeing in Jesus' ministry with his disciples, it's always exactly the opposite. He's the one doing the seeking. He's the one doing the calling. So what this particular story is getting across is something that uh, the Bible makes plain elsewhere. It's this idea that no one enters into a relationship with God unless they're called. This is exactly what Jesus said in no uncertain terms in John chapter 6 when he said, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. Now, to explain what that means, let me give you three examples, one from history, uh, one from Scripture, and then one from our very own church. First and foremost, let me read you this, I quote this guy all the time. If you're new to the church, this is not the first time or last time you're going to hear a C.S. Lewis quote, but here's how C.S. Lewis um, reflected on the moment he gave his life to Jesus. He says, Amiable agnostics, which an agnostic, if you're not familiar with somebody who believes there's not really enough evidence to know one way or the other where there's a God. He said, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about, quote, unquote, man's search for God. He said, to me, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. (laughs) He says, I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I'd wanted to call my soul my own. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene. That's where he worked. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. He's talking about God there. And listen to this. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <clears throat> you heard the, um, you know, the, his, his unique brand of humor there, that he, he was looking for God like a mouse looks for a cat. And what he says there is that he entered into a life-changing relationship with God, not because of his unrelenting search for God, but because of God's unrelenting search for him. This is the same thing that Paul the Apostle said when he um, talked about how he came to the saving knowledge of Jesus. He talks about this in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He says, For you've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And listen to this. But when God who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. I'll just pause there. If you know anything about Paul's story, you know that he didn't start following Jesus until he was an adult, probably about 20 years old, when Jesus famously met and flattened him on the road to Damascus. And yet what he's doing here is with the benefit of hindsight, looking back over his life and realizing that long before he had any idea what God was doing in his life, God was working behind the scenes, orchestrating the events in Paul's life so as to bring Paul into a relationship with himself. All right, third, last example is actually from our church, and um, I'm not going to say any names here, which I love doing this because then everybody in the congregation wonders, is Ryan talking about me? And only one of you is right. Several years ago, a gentleman, I guess I just lost half of you, But several years ago, a gentleman walked into our church for the first time, and I'll, let me just say, 
he didn't exude a lot of warmth when he came in here for the first time. Uh, there was a little bit of um, kind of a coldness, you could say a sharpness, a standoffishness. And I got the, the sense that he didn't even really agree with a lot of what I was saying. Uh, I got that sense because he told me <laughs> as much. And, and not long after he started coming, um, work took him away. And I thought that would be the end of it, but I found out that he continued to tune in online. So we were doing a series one year leading up to Easter, looking at the I Am Statements of Jesus. And uh, at the front end of that series, we'd actually prayed over it. And we had prayed that God would bring people to listen to those messages who, who did not know Jesus in a personal way, that God would bring people like that to our church and that there would be breakthroughs, that they'd come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of, of the first week of that series, I just mentioned that. I said, hey, I just want you to know, if, if you're listening to this message and, and you've heard about Jesus, but you don't know him in a personal way, I just want you to know a number of people have been praying for you. So anyway, this guy reached out to me through social media and told me that when he heard that people had been praying for him, that he, could, he would come to know Jesus, he said he could, he could hardly contain himself. He was so overcome with emotion. And when he came back here, I personally could witness. It was almost like I barely recognized him anymore because for a while I almost couldn't talk about Jesus without him getting emotional. And, of course, he got saved and baptized and, you know, brought people in and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm, I'm saying all this to say that what happened in his life is the same thing that happened in C.S. Lewis's life. It's the same thing that happened in Paul the Apostle's life. It's the same thing that happened in Matthew's life. And the reason I wanted on the front end of our time to talk through these examples is really to make two points. First off, uh, every conversion story, legitimate conversion story, will look unique. Uh, for C.S. Lewis, you heard the quote, C.S. Lewis's moment where he came to Jesus was, was very cognitive and very intellectual, which makes sense if you've ever read C.S. Lewis. Um, for the gentleman from our church and a lot of other people, myself included, that moment where we start following Jesus was much more emotional. I remember praying to God and saying, I'm so sorry for thinking anything other than you could satisfy. I mean, I lost some water weight when I came home to God. It wasn't the case for C.S. Lewis. It's not the case for some people. With Paul, it was very dramatic. And he's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus literally needed to knock him off his high horse and blind him for three days, you know, humble him into the dirt. But you're seeing here with Matthew, Matthew didn't need any of that. Jesus basically just showed up to his office and said, hey, Matthew, why don't we take a walk. And so what we should get from that is we should never try to normalize or standardize one particular experience or one particular expression and say, okay, well, that's how it has to look for everybody or else it's not real. Because one thing I'm well acquainted with about Jesus, and I'm sure a lot of you could say amen to this, is Jesus meets people where they are. He has exactly what they need in order for them to be able to take their next step. And so he's going to work differently in different people's lives. All that being said, as unique as that it might look in, in individual people's lives, one thing is a bold statement. One thing that every single conversion and every single genuine conversion story has in common is this. You don't have your life transformed by Jesus just because once upon a time, you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, got baptized, got confirmed, took communion, and it became a member, any of that kind of stuff. You don't have, according to Scripture, you don't have your life transformed by Jesus just because you started incorporating some religious activity into your life. Your life is transformed by Jesus because at some point in your life, and often we don't even recognize this until hindsight, like Paul himself, let me start over. You're transformed by a relationship with Jesus because at some point in your life, 
something from outside of you was drawing you and shaping you and pushing you and molding you and calling you. So two implications before I move on from this idea. First, for Christians, if it's true that the only, the only reason you have a relationship with God is because God first sought you out, then what that means is there is absolutely no room for even a hint of arrogance or condescension in us toward people who have not, don't have a relationship with Jesus. If, if Christianity was like every other religion in the sense that it depended on us to kind of figure it out uh, or, or work it out and, and sort of save ourselves to some degree, then we would have a right to look down on people who weren't as wise as us, didn't work as hard as us, weren't as you know, moral as us. But since Christianity is primarily about God and his grace, there's absolutely no room for that in the family of God. However, secondly, and when I was putting this, to get, this teaching together, I was really particularly uh, kind of excited about what I'm getting ready to say because I have a feeling it's going to hit home for a lot of people. So maybe just, if I lost you for a second, lean in here before we get to point two. When I was putting this teaching together, I realized uh, I, I was going to be speaking to a lot of people who are in process. What I mean by that is maybe you have been, you know, tuning in online for a little while, um, maybe... Um, Maybe you've been attending services kind of on and off, but it hasn't clicked for you yet. I remember uh, not long ago, I had a conversation with a young man after church service who told me he wanted more than anything to have that life-changing encounter with God that so many people talk about, but he was frustrated because it wasn't happening. If that's where you're coming from, this particular passage um, has something for you. So in, in verse 13, Jesus says, go and learn what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Stay with me. We're going to talk next week about exactly what Jesus is saying there. But what what I want to focus on here is just the fact that Jesus said, go and learn what this means. That's Jesus' way of saying, go home and think about this. Reflect on this. Dwell on this. Talk to other people about this. Figure this thing out. Where I'm going with this is Jesus there gave people a homework assignment. So contrary to popular belief, Christianity is not the kind of thing that requires you to sort of check your intellect at the door and turn your brain off and just, you know, faith it out even though it doesn't make any sense. From Jesus Christ himself, we can see that Christianity, right from its inception, has been a belief system for thinking people. It requires a great deal of thought and frequently requires a lot of time. And it's easy to look at this and say, man, I just wish my story was like Matthew's I wish Jesus would just show up to my place of business and say, hey, come follow me, and it'd just be this instantaneous thing. But we have every reason to believe, based on what we see in the gospel accounts, that Matthew had known Jesus for a long time before this. Jesus was already good and famous. He'd been preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of a traveling circuit. He'd worked all kinds of miracles. Pastor Anthony talked about that last week. So Matthew would have known who Jesus was for potentially years at this point. He would have heard Jesus' messages. He would have seen Jesus' miracles. He'd have had a lot of time to reflect on that and chew on that and consider that before the moment that Jesus showed up to his office and said, Matthew, it's time to come and follow me. And so if you're coming from a place this morning where you want it to click, you're not sure that it has, you're beginning to get impatient, the best thing anybody could give you is exactly what Jesus gave people here. Just don't stop showing up. Don't stop thinking and studying and reasoning and reflecting and talking to people who it has clicked for and know above everything else, and I hope this encourages you, 
that if you find in yourself a desire to meet with God, then according to Jesus Christ himself, that desire in and of itself is actually evidence that God desires to meet with you. So first question, where does this call come from? It comes from outside of us. The second thing I want to look at in this story uh, is who this call is about. Or you may have noticed here uh, that the, the exchange between Matthew and Jesus is, is remarkably brief. It consists of two words. Jesus just says, follow me. All right, what I want to point out here is what Jesus does not say. Jesus doesn't say, follow this advice. He doesn't say, follow these ideas or these teachings or this philosophy, which is basically what every other founder of every other major belief system did. Jesus said, you follow me. And this is something that Jesus had a habit of during his ministry. I'll just give you a couple of examples. A little later on in Matthew's gospel account, there's this moment where Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them this kind of iconic question. He says, who do you say that I am? Jesus didn't ask, what did you think about the Sermon on the Mount? You know, what did you think about point three before I called the worship team up or however it worked back then? He says, who do you say that I am? Uh, it, which was what he was always doing. He was forcing people to figure out who, who am I. When he met uh, Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus didn't say, Saul, you've been breaking all God's rules. He says, Saul, Saul, you've been persecuting me. There's a moment where Jesus was kind of sparring with the religious leaders. This is a, an incredible claim to make. He said, you search the scriptures because you think you're going to find life in them, yet Jesus said those scriptures are testifying about me. Go through John's gospel account. You look at the I am statements of Jesus, and he was always saying things like, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. I'm the true vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What I'm, what I'm highlighting here is all during his time here, Jesus was constantly driving people to get to this point where they had to make a decision about who he was. Now, what that means, especially if you're, you're new to Christianity or maybe you're, you're investigating and trying to figure out what you even think of Christianity, what this means, this might sound strange coming from a pastor, so let me walk through it. This means the primary question that you should be asking yourself, the first and most pressing question is not, what do I think about the biblical teaching on this particular subject, right? Of course, it's necessary to figure out what the Bible tells us about how life is meant to be lived in all these different areas. But the first and most pressing question that we should wrestle with is the same question that Jesus got his own disciples to wrestle with, which is, who do we say Jesus is? Here's why this is so important. <clears throat> when I was 19 years old, God got a hold of my life when I was working at Hollister in the Marley Station Mall. The giggles were not necessary, all right? I'm a different man than I used to be. Uh, when Jesus got a hold of my life, I, um, all I wanted, and this is you know, pretty common, for, I'm, I'm sure you probably reflect on this in your own life, all I wanted was for other people to get to know Jesus like I did. And so I was, you know, inviting my friends to church and talking to my manager about the things of God. And, and me and my manager had a really cool relationship. His name was Matt. And so one night he asked me uh, if I would work late. Uh, we had some sort of clothing emergency that required, I don't know. So he asked me to work late. And I said, yes, I will work late if you read Romans. Pretty innovative. Uh, and so I had a, I had a hard hardback, New King Jimmy version of the Bible in, um, in my car at the time, and I brought it in, and I said, here you go, Matt, and he said, okay. So I held up my end of the deal, and I worked that grueling shift in the Hollister mines, 
And then uh, a couple days later, I checked up on him, and I said, hey, what'd you think of Romans? And he told me he quit before he made it out of the first chapter. Uh, The reason that he did that, and it's going to get real here for a second, but follow me because this is an important point to make. The reason he quit before he got out of Romans chapter 1 is because if you've ever read Romans chapter 1, you know that the Bible is explicitly clear in Romans chapter 1 in particular that homosexuality is a sin, which is not a popular thing to say, obviously, in our culture today. He read that. He didn't like that. That challenged him. That offended him. And so he basically said, hey, you know, I don't don't want to take this any further. So uh, I make that, I, I tell that story to make the case that a lot of people approach God that way especially in our hyper-individualistic kind of follow-your-heart culture, a lot of people approach God, approach Christianity in general, approach the Bible that way with this mindset that says, all right, I'll give it a shot, I'll investigate, but if it says anything that, that really challenges me or I disagree with, then, you know, I'm going to take my ball and go home, which as a quick thought experiment here, I'm really not trying to be grandstandy, but just, you know, think about this. As a thought experiment, if it's true If it's true that there is a transcendent God who is omniscient and is the source of all wisdom and he sits enthroned above all culture and that God has actually communicated to us, which of course, that's what Christians believe the Bible is. If it's true that a God like that actually has communicated to us, I'll just make this personal, then it's pretty wild for me to assume that nothing that God says would ever challenge me. That carries with it some pretty, I'll say, wild assumptions. But the reason I hold up this story to you is to make the case that the the first, the primary, the most pressing question we should wrestle with is who is Jesus? Because just think about this logically. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then we got two options. He is a liar who has deliberately led billions of people astray. That's wicked. Or number two, he's a lunatic who really believed his own truth claims, but he was just nuts. The point is, if he's not who he claimed to be, we shouldn't care about it. What he said deserves no further thought. Let's not burn a single mental calorie on it. However, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if Jesus actually is God that entered into humanity to save us by taking our sin on himself, he did die on a cross, rise again three days later, and is currently seated at the right hand of the throne of God and will return one day to finish what he started. Now it no longer matters what I think of what he said because he's the king, which makes me something other than the king, the guy that listens to the king. So I say all that to say, number two, who is this call about? It's about Jesus, and it forces us to figure out who he is. Now, just before I get on to my my third and last point, maybe you heard that and you thought, yeah, it's a good idea for kind of new believers or investigators or skeptics or whatever you want to call them, but, you know, not not much for people that have been in the faith. And and if I can push back on that, I just want to point out, Scripture makes it clear that going back to Jesus and seeing Jesus again is not just the way that we make entry into Christianity. It's the way we progress all through Christianity. So so listen to this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul wrote, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. So we're looking at the glory of the Lord, he says, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The idea there is the only way that men and women 
are progressively transformed into the image of Jesus as if we are constantly with a fresh set of eyes seeing him again and again, going back to who he is and what he's done. That is the primary way, not our effort, but being melted by the grace of God that the image of Jesus is formed in us and all of our residual self-centeredness and pride and all of that is burned off so that we can better emulate Christ. That's who this call is about. Thirdly, and this will be my last idea today, Let's talk about the, the kind of response that this, um, this call demands. I don't know if you picked up on this story that right after Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, uh, the scene abruptly changes, and it says they're reclining at table in the house. If you hop over to Mark's gospel account, you'll discover that the house they were eating at was none other than Matthew's house. So Jesus shows up and tells Matthew to follow him, and then Matthew is inviting Jesus over his house for a meal. Again, very significant detail in that culture. Because in that day, to have somebody over your house for, for a meal, to recline at table, was, was sort of, we almost don't have, it, it's almost lost in our culture because of how individualistic we are. But in Matthew's day, there was really no greater expression of friendship than that. It was basically like you were publicly identifying with somebody. In that culture, the evening meal around a table was the, the center of family life, um, it was something that really your whole day worked up to, and there was no agenda after it, right? In our day, you know, people are on their phone, you know, they're watching TV, or, you know, we got homework to finish up, or we got to hurry up and get to bed, you rush through the meal. It wasn't like that in Matthew's day. In Matthew's day, when you reclined at table with people, you just lit lamps and, and you lit torches, and that's what you did for the rest of the evening. You just kind of dwelt together, and you got into each other's lives. It was, it was, it was almost like you were making somebody a part of your life when you invited them to that meal. That's why, if you're familiar with the story of Zacchaeus, who was also a tax collector, we're told that Jesus, when he was, you know, good and famous by this point in his career, these crowds were gathered to try to, you know, get close to Jesus. Everybody wanted to know who he was and maybe get something from him. Uh, and Zacchaeus was a wee little man, was he, I think the song said, so he climbed up a tree. I can relate to that, Zacchaeus. There's room for short kings in the kingdom of God. Praise him. So Zacchaeus, <laughs> Zacchaeus climbed a tree to see And then of all the people in the crowd that day, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, get on down from that tree. I'm eating at your house tonight. Now, pause for a second. That, if you read that text through modern eyes, it's it's kind of rude. Like if somebody came up to you at church that you'd never met before and said, I'm eating at your house tonight, then it really puts you out. Now you got to clean your house. You don't get to take a nap after church. I love a post-church snooze. And then you got to go to the grocery store and whatever you're entertaining, you got to be on. In that culture, Zacchaeus had never been so honored in his life because here you have, here you have this whole crowd dying to get close to Jesus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, despite everything you've done and everybody you've cheated and the reputation that you've drugged through the mud, Zacchaeus, I'm dying to get close to you. And simply having that meal, if you know the story, simply having that meal with Jesus changed Zacchaeus forever. It instantly reinvented his relationship with money. He paid back everybody. He cheated with interest. He gave the rest of his wealth to the poor. He was never the same just because he shared that meal with Jesus. And all that to say, here Matthew is inviting Jesus into his home. Now, what that is, here's here's where I've gone with all this. That's Matthew's way of saying, Jesus, I don't just follow you in a part-time way, and I don't just follow you in a private way. To have Jesus over his home was Matthew's way of saying, Jesus, I publicly identify with you. I'm attaching my name and my reputation to you, and I am welcoming you into absolutely every area of my life. That 
and nothing less is what the call of Jesus demands. All right, and we know from the rest of Matthew's gospel account, the book of Acts, and, and really church history, that the journey that Jesus took Matthew on starting that fateful day in the verses we read, the journey he took Matthew and the rest of those disciples on was anything but easy. Because as we're going to see in the next weeks of this series, in just a few months, all of these disciples would be running for their lives. They would be abandoning Jesus. They're cowering behind closed doors. You get to the book of Acts. You see, Jesus was constantly leading them into situations they were totally unprepared for. They didn't have the training for. They would have constantly felt overwhelmed and over their head and just driven to their knees in prayer. And what are we going to do? And how are you going to deal with this? And we can see, of course, in hindsight, that all of that, Everything that Jesus led them through was just his way of making them who he called them to be so that he could do what he desired to do in and through them. And and if there's one thing, not just in the disciples of Jesus, but you look from Genesis to Revelation, all the men and women that God called and God used, one thing that every single one of their stories is really communicating to us is that at the end of the day, we, we, we just have no idea what it's going to take, how far we're going to have to go, or what God is going to have to lead us through as we follow him in order to make us into the people that he's called us to be. But what we do know, and this might be the the only thing we ever know on this side, is that eventually it'll be worth it. I don't know that there's a single story that, that really encapsulates this idea better than a story that I usually get out a couple times a year. <clears throat> we're almost done, so I'd ask you to lean in here. About 150 years ago, George MacDonald wrote a, it's a children's book called The Princess and the Goblin, uh, and it's about this little girl named Irene uh, who has her, it's her fairy grandmother that occasionally appears in the attic of her home, and on one occasion, she gives Irene a ring with a thread attached to it and says uh, that she would hold the ball, the grandmother would hold the ball at the other end. The catch was that this thread was actually invisible, couldn't be seen, just felt. You had to literally put your hand on it and walk with it. And the grandmother promised, that if you ever get yourself in any trouble, you just put this ring under your pillow, you follow this thread, and eventually, somehow, it's going to take you to me. So a couple of days go by, and these evil creatures break into her home. And uh, she's terrified, but she does exactly what her grandmother said. She took the ring off, put it under her pillow. She feels for the thread. She starts to follow it, and it takes her out of her house, and she's safe. But the longer she follows the thread, it, the more she begins to realize that it was taking her directly to the cave of these creatures that were trying to kill her. It was absolutely the last place on the planet that she wanted to go. But nevertheless, she follows it through these you know, winding tunnels until it eventually takes her to this, um, this wall of rocks, a dead end, essentially. And so she figures, well, there must be some kind of mistake, but at least I can follow my thread out. But as soon as she starts to, to try to follow her thread in reverse, it disappears entirely. The thread could only be followed forward. And so this, this hopelessness begins to set in on her, and she breaks down crying, but she comes to herself and realizes the only way that she can follow this thread is right through this wall of stones. So she begins to tear at them and, and, and pull them down, and she cuts herself up, and she's in so much pain, and she's so scared, and she doesn't know what's going to happen. But she hears a voice that she recognizes on the other side of this wall. It's her friend, Curdie. Curdie was absolutely shocked that Irene had found him and asked, you know, how on earth did you come to find me? She says, my grandmother sent me here, and I think I'm beginning to understand why. So she continues to pull at the rocks until the opening was big enough for Curdie to climb out, and he does. But Irene starts to climb further in, and Curdie tries to stop her. He says, what are you doing? That's not the way out. That's, that's where I was. That's the opposite of the way you want to go. And she says, I know, but I have to follow my thread. 
If I'd stopped following it before, even when it didn't make any sense to me, I never would have found you. And so even though it doesn't make any sense to me now, I have to follow my thread. And, of course, it has a, a good ending because her grandmother can really be trusted. But Tim Keller comments on that story in his book, Jesus the King. <clears throat> and I'm going to read this quote to you as we close today. I came across this several years ago. It's really meaningful to me, um, and I hope maybe that it, it's meaningful to you. While I read this, worship team, you can come on back. Keller wrote, When Jesus told the disciples, We're on the way, follow me, they had no idea where he was going. They thought he was going to go from strength to strength to strength. They had no idea. And when you start to follow Jesus, you have no idea how far you'll have to go. Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to take you on a journey, and I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I want you to put me first. I want you to keep trusting me, to stick with me, not turn back, not give up. Turn to me in all the disappointments and injustices that will happen to you. I'm going to take you places that will make you say, why in the world are you taking me there? Even then, I want you to trust me. The path Jesus takes you on may look like it's taking you to one dead end after another. Nevertheless, the thread does not work in reverse. If you just obey Jesus and follow it forward, it'll do its work. You say, that sounds pretty hard, and you're right. How can we possibly follow the thread? It's simple, but profound. Jesus himself does absolutely everything he's calling us to do. Here's how he ends. It's going to look as if your thread is taking you into dead ends. Places where you'll get bloody. Where the only way to follow the thread looks like it could crush you. But don't try to go backward. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you. He followed his thread to the cross so you can follow yours into his arms. <clears throat> I don't know where your thread is leading you at this time in your life, what God might be calling you to step into or what he might be calling you to walk away from, but what I am absolutely certain about is that if Matthew were alive today, he would say, follow your thread because the one who put it in your hand can be trusted. That's it. That's all. I want to read this over you before we take communion. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll start in verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were closed. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Even to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. I love this. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You can take the bread and the cup. I'll pray and dismiss us, and if you'd like to and are able, you can stand with me as I do so. Father God, I am confident that there are people here right now 
that have sensed your call, that you brought here this Sunday to make sense of something that they've not been able to shake in their life. I'm, I'm sure, God, there's people in this room listening right now that you've called either to surrender to you for the very first time, to finally hand the reins of their life over to you, or to simply surrender in a newer and deeper way as you call them to let go of something behind and step into something new, whatever it is. Father, what we need more than anything else is what we just read about. We need to see Jesus. We need to see him with a fresh set of eyes, either for the first time or the next time. We need to see the Savior who died that we could live so that we can know that the Savior who put the thread in our hands that he's called us to follow is a Savior that can be trusted. Please make us a community of people that trust you enough to follow you wherever you lead, knowing that you can be trusted. It's in the name of Jesus we ask all these things and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, Severin.